Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah 53. Because we're so familiar with this passage, it would be easy to just kind of gloss our way through it. But last week, as we got into the first portion of it, we concentrated on what the words are actually saying. And I showed you the several places where the New Testament authors quote directly from this particular passage, this particular text. The New Testament authors believe that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah, and their proof, their evidence, was the fact that Isaiah predicted this of the Messiah, whoever that was going to be, and that Jesus of Nazareth actually fulfilled all of this, actually not only accomplished it, but he underwent everything that is described here. And so they use this prophecy from Isaiah 53 in order to validate this prophecy from Isaiah. In other words, they agree with what Isaiah has said prophetically about the Messiah, and they use the prophecy of Isaiah to point to Jesus and say, he's the one because he fulfills every one of these details. And then Paul picks up from Isaiah, Isaiah's anthropology, Isaiah's outlook on mankind, that there's no one who stirs himself up to seek after God. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. So Paul agrees with Isaiah's anthropology and theology of salvation and man's corruption. In other words, when we look at the New Testament authors, it's very clear that they agree with Isaiah, the last part of chapter 52, all of chapter 53, which describes Jesus as Messiah, they agree with that, and therefore the church at large agrees with that. Paul argues that Isaiah has the proper understanding of mankind's problem and our corruption, and therefore the church at large agrees with Isaiah about that, because after all, Paul agrees with it. Paul uses that as the basis for his theology of man's corruption. So then we have to ask ourselves, what about the whole rest of Isaiah? That's the reason that we've been going for all these months, chapter by chapter through the book of Isaiah, verse by verse through each chapter, so that we can become familiar with what else Isaiah says. And one of the primary themes of the entire book of Isaiah is the restoration of Israel and the glorious future that is promised to them. And in fact, as I showed you last week, I didn't show it to you. I mean, it's right there in front of you. It's written in the text. But we looked at the fact that just before the words, behold, my servant will prosper, so that Isaiah launches into his description of Jesus, just before that, we read, that the Lord will restore Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. 
you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and redeemed Jerusalem. And the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all nations, so that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Behold, the servant of God who's going to prosper. And tonight we're going to see how it is that he's prospering and that he's going to be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And then chapter 54 starts with, Shout for joy, O barren one. You that have no child, break forth into joyful shouting. You can see the thematic consistency of chapter 52, the beginning of it, and chapter 54, the beginning of it. The themes are exactly the same. And in fact, in chapter 54, if you get to verse 5, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. So my point is, those sit like bookends before and after Isaiah's description of Jesus, the Messiah. And so it is impossible to extricate the promises that are given to Israel, the promises of restoration, the promise of a kingdom to come and a bountiful, glorious future for them, considering that God says it right before and right after the Messiah stuff. And the Messiah stuff, the entire church agrees on. The Messiah stuff, everybody points to so quickly and writes volumes and books about Isaiah 53, the gospel in the Old Testament. People are very adamant to say, well, yeah, this is the theme of Isaiah. But not quite. The theme of Isaiah is equally the restoration of Israel and the promise of the Messiah to come is planted right in the midst of those promises to Israel. So I'm arguing for the consistency, the wholeness of Isaiah. After all, we do believe in tota scriptura. We do believe that every word of God, as Paul says, is breathed by God. It is all inspired scripture. So you don't get to go, well, Isaiah 53, that's definitely the word of God, because look, prophetically it fits, and there it is. And oh, and that whole, unto us a child is born, a son is given. We're going to quote that every Christmas, because that's valid. And oh, that whole, you know, no one ever stirred himself up to seek God. Well, that proves that God has to seek man. So we agree with that. But then what about all the other stuff? Because from this point forward, after we get done tonight with Isaiah 53, the whole rest of the book of Isaiah is about Israel. And the whole first 52 chapters have been about Israel. And so, again, I am just arguing, if you're going to validate Isaiah 53, then you have to validate all of Isaiah. And Isaiah is one of the more frequently quoted prophets in the New Testament. And so the hermeneutic of the first century New Testament writers was constant validation of the book of Isaiah. They clearly felt that the whole of it was prophetic in nature, was God-breathed in nature, and in fact was valid and believable. It's just the 2,000-year-old Gentile church that has decided that only portions of Isaiah are actually valid. I disagree. I think that what we're going to read from Isaiah 53 
is validity of the entirety of the book of Isaiah. And I don't think you can read it any other way without doing damage to the text. Now, I know I'm beating a dead horse yet again when I say that, and I get it. But I'm going to keep on saying it and keep on saying it because there is a very committed movement within the modern Christian church to extricate Isaiah 53 from the whole rest of Isaiah and say the rest of it isn't really that, oh, and those promises to Israel, oh, and the restoration of Israel and their glorious future. That's not real because now the church is Israel. But when they get to Isaiah 53, they suddenly get very literal and argue. They change their entire hermeneutic in order to say, well, this is valid, literally valid. This is actually exactly what happened. But the rest of that stuff about Israel, no. You get what I'm saying? Yep. Well, then hopefully I can stop being a dead horse in front of you. But I got to keep saying this on the internet. Who has believed our report? Isaiah, at that moment, is talking about everything he has said up until that moment. You have to remember that he spoke and prophesied in front of kings. He spoke and prophesied to Judah, even as they were taken into the Babylonian captivity. He prophesied judgment against the Gentile nations. He prophesied restoration for the northern ten tribes. And yet, there's very little actual evidence that Israel at any point said, well, that's clearly the prophecy of God. Let's all line up behind Isaiah and have faith in God because this is what God has promised us. And so, of course, Isaiah would start by saying, who's believed our message? Who's believing what I'm saying? If you just look at that through 20th century Gentile eyes, you would think that this only has to do with the report about Jesus. But it doesn't. It has to do with the entire report that Isaiah is putting forward. And he's asking the question, who has believed it, which I think perfectly suits everything I've been saying so far tonight. Here's all this stuff that Isaiah has said. Now, who believes it? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed once again? Christianity, and in fact, the whole of the Bible is revealed religion. God has to show it to you. This is the same Isaiah who said nobody stirred himself up to seek God. That all men are corrupt within. They don't have the ability to clean themselves up. They don't have the internal wisdom to figure out the stuff of God. If they're going to understand anything about God, God has to reveal it to them. That is not just New Testament theology. That's not something that Paul made up. That's something that even Isaiah said. In describing how deep the genuine corruption of people is, I mean, look, Jesus walked and talked on the planet, did miracles, healed people, walked on water, fed 5,000, did all that, and they killed him in unbelief. So you would think that rational, logical people seeing that amount of evidence would be swayed by the evidence or the amount of short-term prophecies that Isaiah has predicted, like you're going to go into Babylon, and then it happened in his lifetime. You would think that would be enough to make the the people of Jerusalem all turn to him and say, wait, 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 you seem to know what's going on. 
we're going to have faith in God based on what you're saying. Tell us the rest of it. But they didn't. Because again, to know anything about God, it has to be revealed to you. And therefore, Isaiah said, the reason that people don't believe it is that the arm of the Lord, the might, the power of God through Jesus Christ, that all has to be revealed to you. We looked at this last week, for he grew up before him. Jesus grew up before him like a tender shoot. And I said, you know, uh, if you see a new piece of grass, a new shoot growing up through the pavement somewhere, it's got a remarkable amount of strength to it. It's green, it's nourished. Otherwise, it wouldn't have the ability to do that. Jesus grew up in parched ground, dry ground, not ground that would raise up healthy plants. And yet Jesus rose up as a strong, green, tender shoot and a root out of parched ground. And yet he had no stately form, no majesty, so that we would look upon him, nor any appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. In other words, we did not hold him according to the reputation that he deserved. And yet, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. And yet we ourselves, when we did look upon him, when we did think about him or his reputation, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through because of our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Last week, I emphasized the idea that all of the pronouns being used here, we, our, us, are all referring to Jerusalem, are all referring to the people of Israel. That's who Isaiah was prophesying to. And we even went back and looked at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah, where he took the time to say that he was speaking to the sons of Israel. That's the introduction to the book. And so if he is prophesying to Israel 700 years before Jesus was even on the planet, before the day of Pentecost had come, before the inception of the church, before any of that, well then when he says we and our and us, he's talking about Israel. Now granted, we by grace get grafted into this promise. That's why I keep emphasizing it's amazing, astounding grace that God is being this good to us, that he would allow us to partake in promises that belong to Israel. But the fact is, they belong to Israel. All the covenants in the Bible, every single one of them, check me out, prove me wrong, every single one of them belongs to Israel. All the prophets of the Bible belong to Israel. The law belongs to Israel. The oracles belong to Israel. And yet we, Gentiles, the church, are brought by grace into promises that belong to Israel. 
And so just because we are here, this is why Paul was so adamant in saying that just because we got grafted in, we can't start boasting ourselves against the natural branches and start saying, well, now we're here. And so God is fulfilling his word, all those prophecies of the Old Testament. He's fulfilling them now in us. And therefore, they don't count for Israel anymore because, well, we're here and we're the know-all and the end-all of what God's going to do. And yet these promises, surely our griefs, that's Israel's griefs. He himself bore our sorrows. How many sorrows did Israel have at the moment? They'd been in captivity. Their land has been occupied from out under them. The temple has been destroyed. The city walls are down. They're carrying a great deal of sorrow. And yet he's going to carry those sorrows. We ourselves, we're going to be the guilty ones. We esteemed him as stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Yes, because when Christ was crucified, they even went so far as to say, let his blood be on us and on our children. That's the way that they understood him. That's the way that they esteemed him. And that's why it's even more astounding, more remarkable that we would read things like, but he was pierced through for our transgressions because it is the transgressions of Israel that caused the division between them and God. The reason that they are in captivity at the moment is because of their transgressions against God. And yet God has made all these promises of restoration and redemption, keeps calling himself the redeemer of Israel. I read it for you just a moment ago out of Isaiah 54, verse 5. Your redeemer is the holy one of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. God keeps referring to himself, proper name, as the redeemer of Israel. So how is he going to redeem them, considering how rebellious they are, how stiff-necked, how hard-hearted they've been, how they have broken his laws, how they have searched out their other gods, how they have rebelled against him? What is going to be the means whereby he's going to accomplish all these promises of restoration and redemption and this glorious future that he has promised them? How is he going to get them from your stiff-necked, hard-hearted rebels against God all the way to, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. How's he going to make that transition? That's where chapter 53 is positioned where it is in the book of Isaiah. So that you know their terrible situation and you know the promises of their future. And now you're getting the revelation of how God's going to do it. He's going to do it by sending them someone who is going to be pierced through for their transgressions. That's how God can keep from pouring out his anger and wrath on Israel and destroying them utterly and instead give them the future that he has promised them. He's going to do it by extracting a price, but he's not going to extract it from them. He's going to extract it from the Messiah to come. And he was pierced through for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening, the chastisement for our well-being fell upon him. And by his stripes, says the King James, the NASB goes with, and by his scourging, we are healed. Last week, we read Jeremiah 30, 
17 to 22, and we read Isaiah 1, 1 to 6, just so that I could show you the places where both Isaiah and Jeremiah say to Israel, you're sick, and your wound is incurable, and you're sick from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, and what are you going to do about it? That's why Isaiah says, and by his stripes, we get healing. Now, that does not mean, as the name it, claim it folks would say, that does not mean that everybody who has faith in Jesus gets physically healed. Instead, it's talking about national healing of Israel, and it's going to be accomplished through Jesus and through the stripes that he took, by which he paid for the transgressions of Israel, by which he was crushed for their iniquities, he was chastened so that they could have well-being, and therefore, through his scourging, through his stripes, they are nationally healed. Last week, we did not look at Matthew 8. Turn to Matthew 8 for a moment. I'm going to start reading at verse 14. There is no question but that the early understanding of he was scourged for our healing had to do with the national healing of Israel. But Matthew also says that while Jesus was on the planet, he went about healing people because he was satisfying the fact that Isaiah said that he was going to heal people. Now, this is interesting. I'll read it first, and then we're going to talk about the way that Matthew utilized this verse. I'm going to start reading at verse 14. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand and the fever left her. And she got up, and she waited on him. Now when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all those who were sick. This happened so that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled. He himself took our illnesses and carried away our diseases." Now, notice that Matthew says that and sees that connection to Isaiah 53 before the cross. And so he is saying part of what Messiah's got to do to prove that he is Messiah is that he's got to have this healing ability. And Matthew witnessed that he actually took care of their diseases, their illnesses, cast out demons with a word, which Matthew sees as yet more evidence that this actually is the Messiah. What Matthew does not do is say, so now that negates the whole national healing thing that's going to be accomplished on the cross, because even Matthew, like the other disciples before Jesus died on the cross, didn't understand that that's what the prophecies were saying. That's why in the early part of the book of Acts, we see that there was confusion still as people were trying to figure out that Jesus had actually fulfilled the scriptures. So I do want to mention it because I had stressed last week and this week that it has to do with national healing, but I do also want to be honest enough with the text to say that Matthew did use a portion of this text in order to say that when Jesus healed people and drove out demons, that that was also proof that he was Messiah according to what was written in Isaiah. What he did not say was, that proves the name it, claim it, healing pastors are all correct now, 
and it does away with the concept of national healing that Isaiah was talking about. We never did get to that last week, so now I'm glad to have cleared that up. Boy, here is a statement that just couldn't be more true, and I take a certain amount of comfort in knowing that even in Isaiah's day, it was true. It was true of Israel, it's true of us now. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Isaiah really knew what he was talking about at that moment because he's living in an agricultural society where sheep herding is a very important part of the economy of Israel. And there were a lot of shepherds. And you could talk to a shepherd and say, what's your chief problem? And he would tell you, the sheep just keep wandering off. And that's why they used to carry that crook with them, so that they could dig them out of ditches they would fall into. And so Isaiah likens all of us, all of Israel, and I think all of humanity, to sheep who are constantly going our own way. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's a constant problem. Look, we're Christians. We call ourselves Christians. We spend time in the Bible. We try to live out our lives after a biblical worldview. We try to please our master. We try to walk in a way that the Bible describes. And yet, I think if I asked for a show of hands, which I won't do to save you the embarrassment, I think that we would all have to admit that it's just really, really easy to wander off and go do your own thing. If we had any real concept of who God is and what he has done for us, we would never get up off our face. We'd be worshiping nonstop. But, you know, there's things to do. Other stuff to think about. TV shows to watch. Jobs to go to. I got, I got stuff to do. I'm busy. Can't you see I'm a busy guy? All we like sheep. We've all turned to our own way rather than following God's way. The good news in the second half of that verse is, but, oh, I love that word right there. Because I completely relate to the phrase, oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That's me. I don't care if it describes you or not. That describes me perfectly. Much to my embarrassment, much to my shame, I wish I was a more consistent God follower. And I'm the one who's constantly studying the word. I'm the one who actually is telling other people about Jesus. You'd think that I, of all people, would kind of have this down by now. No. Well, that's really embarrassing. That's really shameful. But... The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Christ, to fall on the Messiah, which means he's paying the price not only for our rebellion, not only for our sin, not only for our iniquities, but he's paying the price for the fact that we're not consistent. He's paying the price for the fact that we fail constantly. And because our failure renders us incapable of fixing ourselves, 
How often have you heard me say that? The cure for you cannot be you. And because we're incapable of doing it, even those failures were put on Christ. In other words, everything necessary for your full, complete redemption and salvation is in Christ. Every single part of it. And Isaiah said it way back here. Whether you are rebelling, whether you are just sinning against God willfully, or whether you're just wandering off like a dumb sheep, the entire spectrum of your rebellion against God is all laid on Christ. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now the next two verses kind of go together and they are predictive in detail of what Christ is going to go through in his death. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. In other words, this price paying that he is going to do, this sacrificial work that he's going to do, isn't going to go easy on him. In fact, it's going to be so difficult that we know from the New Testament that he prayed to God until his sweat was like great drops of blood. As he said, if it were possible, let this cup pass from me. And it was seen, as we read it, it was seen that he was afraid, that he feared what was coming. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. And yet, he did not open his mouth. This is the same Jesus who told Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane to put away his sword and said, don't you know that I could ask the Father and he would send me 12 legions of angels? Legions of angels would come defend me. And yet all he had to do when he was being beaten, when his beard was being plucked out, when people were punching him in the face and mocking him and saying, okay, prophesy, who's hitting you? After they had blindfolded him, after they put that chunk of wood on his back and paraded him through the streets while people spit on him, all he had to do was say one word, one measly little word. All he had to do is say, you're all dead. And that would have been the end of it. This is the same Jesus who cast out demons with just a word. You don't think you could cast out people's lives with just a word? Mm. And instead, the prince of life, while he was being oppressed, while he was being afflicted by both God and man, did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep, he was silent before his shearers. That's really remarkable. The prince of life who had all power didn't open his mouth. He is the same speaking agency of the triunity of the Godhead. He is the speaking agency through whom the words, let there be light, was spoken. Everything that is, is because he said it is. So if he had spoken, whatever his words were, would become reality. If he had said, stop it, they'd have no power to start it again. You might recall the time that they took him to the edge of a cliff and tried to throw him down. And the next thing we read, rather mysteriously, is that he turned around and walked through the midst of them. This is an angry mob determined to kill him. 
and he walked through the middle of the angry mob and no one could stop him? What kind of power is that? He could have exercised that same power. When he was standing before Herod, when he was standing before Pontius Pilate, when he was standing before the mob that was saying, crucify him, you don't think he could have walked through them? He could have walked away from the whole thing. But he didn't out of obedience to his father in order to satisfy what was already written about him in Isaiah 700 years in advance. He came to satisfy what was written about him. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. I think the phrase he was taken away is a reference to his death. But notice how he died. Through oppression, being tortured, being held down, and judgment. The judgment of God. Both the oppression of human beings who in unrighteousness held down the truth of Christ and God pouring out his wrath for the sin of his people. It was a tremendously difficult thing that he underwent and it was described by Isaiah 700 years in advance that by oppression and judgment he'd be taken away. And as for his generation, who considered The word generation there is an English translation of a Greek word that is actually a translation of the Hebrew word. The original Hebrew word means he was here and then he wasn't here. And there was a span of time during which he was here. But when people are on the planet, there are so many people, and so many people have been here and so many people have died. So many people have come and gone that it's impossible to remember all the people who have come and gone. There are even people who were important to us in our lives, who once they're gone, once they pass, we go on with our lives. It's a cruel reality of life that it just continues even when our most precious people pass away. Life just keeps plowing forward. So Jesus was here, and then he died. And that would have been the end of it, except somebody had to tell it and talk about it and repeat it and give the report and talk about it and talk about it. And so as for his time here on earth, who's thought about it? Who's considered it? As for his generation, who has considered it? That he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. Who are Isaiah's people? Israel. Israel. How obvious is that? Mm-hmm. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Israel deserved the punishment. There's no question they deserve the punishment. The whole early part of Isaiah describes in great detail why they deserve the punishment. They're not going to get the full weight of their punishment because that punishment was put on him and he was cut off from the land of the living. And who's going to tell it? Who's going to remember it? Who's going to think about these things? Who's going to consider why he was here and why he died? I mean, when he was walking on the Emmaus Road, two of his disciples 
said, the women have amazed us because they went to the tomb where he was and they said that he's alive again. And then Jesus basically upbraids them and says, oh, fool of heart and slow to believe all that the prophets have said. Why don't you read and understand the scripture? Because it said that I had to do that exact thing. And then it says that he went from the law, from Moses, all the way through the prophet and told them everything that had to do with him so that he could show them that the Messiah had to come and had to die. That was always part of the plan. Well, it's right here in Isaiah. It's described in advance, and yet people still didn't quite get it. Jesus himself had to explain it to them. As for his generation, as for his life and death, as for his time on the earth, what he was doing here, what he accomplished, who's considered it? Who's really thought about it? Who has really paid attention to it and comprehended what this was really about? Who has thought about the fact that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. That's the thing that Isaiah is saying. Who's thought about this? Who considered that? Who came up with this plan? Only God could come up with a plan like that. And you've got to think about it. You've got to consider it. You've got to read the word. You've got to muse on the word. You have to spend time in the word to understand and comprehend that. And God has to enlighten you. He has to quicken you. He has to give you the ability to understand that stuff because the world at large doesn't get it, isn't going to understand it. So you can see why in writing this that Isaiah himself would be saying, who's believing this? Who's understanding it? And who's considering it? Because the vast majority of the world to this very day isn't thinking about it, doesn't understand it, isn't considering it. And the reality is that he was cut off from the land of the living. He died for the transgression of my people to whom that punishment was actually due. That's what he was doing here on earth. That's what he was doing in his death. But then after he died, His grave was assigned with wicked men. That's true. He was put on the cross between two thieves, two malefactors, two that were railing against him, and then one that had a change, an instantaneous change of heart and spirit in the last moments of his life, hanging on the cross, and said, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was assigned a grave with wicked men. And yet, he was with a rich man in his death. We know that he was laid in a grave that no man had ever been laid in, which was really difficult to find over there because you couldn't really dig. People weren't buried under the ground like we do here because so much of Jerusalem is on rock. Therefore, they would build these shrines or they would find caves. They would find places to bury people. And wherever that was, there were just so many people crammed into them. We know that because we've excavated the bones. Archaeologically, we know that there were these mass crypts full of people who had died. And what they would do is, after the flesh had rotted away off them, they'd take the bones, break them up, and put them into a little box and set that aside so that there'd be room for the next dead body. So to be put in a grave that no man had ever lived in was a great expense. 
But Joseph of Arimathea had one of those. And he came and begged Pilate for the body because the next day was the Jewish high day. And so he had to get him off the cross by sundown. And so he begged for the body. He was given permission. And in a hurry, because he had to get him buried before sundown, he took him to the closest tomb, which was his own tomb, in which no man had ever laid. I think it's only appropriate that the Prince of Life would be buried somewhere where no one else had ever been buried. And yet, that little detail, Isaiah recounts accurately. It's amazing. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's going to quote from several of the things we just read in those couple of verses and piece it all together to prove yet again that Jesus is the Messiah, but also to demonstrate the theology of the complete redemption that was accomplished by Jesus. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you would follow in his steps, his obedience. He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, that's exactly what Isaiah said at the end of verse 9 there, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself brought our sins in his body up on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. Notice there that Peter just put that in the context of salvation when he said, by his stripes you are healed, he didn't say, all your diseases are going to go away because Christ died on the cross. After the cross, and knowing what Isaiah has taught, Peter says the same thing I've been advocating for, which is that this is a healing spiritually, nationally, that was accomplished through Jesus. He did not threaten. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously, he himself brought our sins in his body up on the cross. Isn't that good news to know that your sins are already on the cross, already nailed there, already taken away? And as we talked about this last Sunday, not only that, but the law itself, Paul says, was nailed to the cross, taken out of the way. So your sins are taken out of the way. Your trespasses, your rebellion are taken out of the way. And the law that would condemn you is taken out of the way. That's how complete the salvation is that Jesus actually accomplished. He himself brought our sins in his body up on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. We should now reckon our sins as completely dead and paid for and no longer be slave to sin, but to seek after, to live for, to walk in righteousness. And by his wounds, you were healed. 
He's talking about a spiritual healing that was the result of your death and your decay because of sin. He paid your sin debt, therefore you're healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. He got that right from Isaiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. I like both those phrases because the shepherd leads, but the guardian protects. The shepherd had two implements. I already mentioned that he had a crook, a hooked type device that he would use to pull you up. But we also read in David's writing, David, who was a shepherd, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because shepherds had both the staff to lead with, but they also had a rod to get rid of the enemies, the wolves, the lions that would try to eat the sheep. They would protect the sheep. And so Peter takes both those concepts, Christ as our protector and Christ as our shepherd and leader, and combines them and says, you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. He has performed both those duties on our behalf. He not only died for us, he not only redeemed us, he not only bore our sin debt in his body, but he ever lives to make intercession for us and leads us and protects us. That's a very complete savior. Acts 8. You know Acts 8. It is when Philip came across the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch was sitting in his chariot and reading, and the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go join yourself to that chariot. That's a divine appointment right there. And so Philip asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He's reading from Isaiah 53, which starts with, who has believed our report? Who has considered these things? And so naturally then, Philip would say, are you understanding it? Do you get it? And he said, verse 31, well, how could I unless someone guides me? Someone's got to tell me what this is about. I'd love to understand it. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb that is silent before his shearers. So he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? Now, I told you what the Hebrew word was. And then I told you that generation is an English translation of a Greek word, genea. In the Septuagint, genea is the word that is used to translate door. We have to understand what that word genea means. It means more than just any group of people who are alive at the same period of time. Even the NASB at this point takes the time to define generation used in this context as family or origin. So he's talking about a family group, people of a common descent, and that is the way that Ganea is often used, people who have a common heritage, a common descent. That is their family of origin. 
in humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who's going to describe his family, his origin, his time here on earth, his life, his passing? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture, and he preached Jesus to him. In other words, he was accomplishing exactly what Isaiah said when Isaiah said that people are going to have to still talk about it. People are going to have to think about it and report on it. People are going to have to keep talking about it because people by nature are not going to think about it, consider it, or understand it. He was a perfect example. The Ethiopian eunuch reading it still didn't comprehend it, still didn't understand it. Had an inspired apostle show up and explain to him that this was all about Jesus Christ. That is yet again proof positive that the New Testament authors see Isaiah 53 as the proof positive that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah predicted by Isaiah. Got all that? His grave was assigned with wicked men, says Isaiah 53, verse 9, and yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him and put him to grief. We read oftentimes that it was God's good pleasure. He does everything according to the counsel of his own will, and he does everything according to his own good pleasure. And part of his own decision, his pleasure, his willingness to do whatever he wanted, the way he wanted to do it, part of that was that Yahweh was pleased to crush his son instead of you. And you deserve it. I didn't mean to look right at you. Guilty. But you're guilty. You, you, you deserve it. And yet in the great grace and loving kindness of God, Israel, who utterly deserved it, they deserve to go the way of the Hittites. They deserve to just be erased from the planet. The memory of them historically should be gone. And yet, we find them in every country on earth today. They're still alive. They're still holding the promises. They're still holding the scriptures. And they're still holding prophecies of a glorious future. Why? Because that's what pleased the Lord. That's what he promised them, and that's what he's going to do. The Lord was pleased to crush him and put him to grief because the word in the NASB is if. Actually, that can also be on account of or because he rendered himself. He gave himself over to be a guilt offering. He chose. Christ himself offered himself up to God because the blood of bulls and the blood of goats, the blood of sheep, the blood of doves, the blood of animals was never going to be sufficient to pay the sin price for human beings. And so Christ himself offered himself to God as a sufficient guilt offering to satisfy the guilty debt that we all owed to God. When I say the word grace, I'm talking about stuff like this. That it pleased God 
to crush him and he gave himself up to be a guilt offering and therefore God will see his offspring and will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands last week in the introduction to this section I brought up how the Rabbinical tradition is full of arguments about how any one man could satisfy both parts of that. Because a minute ago, he was being crushed and killed and removed from the land of the living. And then after that, God's going to see his offspring and prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord's going to prosper in his hand. How could any one man satisfy both parts of that equation? He's going to die, and he's going to live. He's going to die, but then God is going to see the prolonging of his days and the success of his people. God's going to see his offspring. And God's then going to prolong his days. How long? Forever. He lives forever to make intercession for us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He ever lives. So God prolonged his days. And the same way that the good pleasure of the Lord was to crush him, it is the good pleasure of the Lord that's going to prosper in his hand and make him the authority of all heaven and earth and make him the judge of everyone and everything. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to profess that he is Lord and Savior. In other words, the Lord is going to indeed prosper his hand. So the rabbinical tradition argued about how that could be accomplished. If you want to know their remedy, go back and listen to last week's message. But they argued that there must be two messiahs because no one man could accomplish this. Then we get to the New Testament declarations of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And you can see why somebody like the Ethiopian eunuch could read it and go, Who can do this? What is this about? You need to explain this to me. And was he talking about himself? Was he talking about somebody else? If he's talking about somebody else, who was he talking to? How does this make sense? Who has believed our report? Who has considered these things? As a result of the anguish of his soul, God will see it and be satisfied. If you got nothing else out of tonight, (laughs) if you're anxious to get home to your nice cozy bed, if you want to carry one thing out the door with you, and please don't ever forget it, it's that Isaiah predicted the same way he predicted all these details in such incredible accuracy, he predicted that the work of Christ on the cross, the result of his soul, God would see it and be satisfied. And if God is satisfied with the sacrificial work of Christ, then he doesn't have to demand anything from April. Right? Because right. he's satisfied. Have you ever found yourself waking up in the middle of the night and thinking about you, and it's all you can do to keep yourself from screaming? Mm-hmm. Because you have some comprehension of who you are and what you're like, and where you've been and what you've done, and... And perhaps even what you did and what you thought and how you acted that day. And you think to yourself, I'm supposed to be a Christian. I tell people I'm a Christian. 
sure not acting like a Christian. How could God love somebody like me? I can only conclude that I must not be saved because if I was saved, I wouldn't act like this. And I know for a fact that yet again, I have angered God. I have dissatisfied God. I have to be suffering under the curse of God. That's what I deserve. That, that has to happen. Take heart. By the one single sacrifice of Christ, God was fully satisfied and all your iniquity and all your rebellion was laid on him and he took it with him in his body to the cross and paid for it completely and took the law which would condemn you yet again and he took that out of the way so that you can't be condemned again and so Paul would say who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect it is God who justifies it is Christ who died yea that is risen again He's the one that sits at the right hand of God. He's the one that's making intercession for us because he's the one who has actually accomplished our salvation and redemption. And he's the one who has satisfied God. You're never going to satisfy God. You're never going to be good enough to satisfy God. You never had a day good enough that if God looked at you without the lens of looking through Christ, if he ever had to look at you for who you are and what you're like, you're as dead as dead gets. You're spending eternity in the blackness, the darkness, the lake of fire that he has created for the devil and his angels, and you deserve it. But when Christ looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees his son in whom he's satisfied. That's what he's looking for. He's not looking to measure up your good deeds and your bad deeds. He's looking for the blood of his son. He's looking to see if you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And if the Holy Spirit of God is inhabiting you, God is satisfied with you. And you've never heard anything that wonderful in your stupid, miserable little life than to know that God is satisfied because of Christ. As a result of the anguish of his soul, God will see it and be satisfied by his righteous one, his Messiah, his Christ, his servant, he will justify the many. That's why I just said, Paul said, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God who justifies. And even that justification was done through the finished work of Christ on the cross. My servant will justify the many because he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, God is going to lift him up and give him a name that is above every name. God is going to give him all the glory, all the splendor. God is going to reward him. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but any time that you went to war with another army, after the end of the war, you would take everything that was valuable from them, and you would carry that back with you, and the soldiers would divide it up. Everybody who went into the war would get some part of the booty. Well, Jesus came and did our battle on our behalf. He came and fought our war for us. He paid the price for us, and therefore God says he's going to divide up the booty that belongs to to the strongest, to the, the reward that only God could lay out. He's going to receive it. Why? Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And yet he himself bore the sin of the many and he interceded for their transgressions. 
That is the very essence of who Jesus was, why he was here, and what he accomplished. And 700 years in advance, Isaiah laid out all that theology in great detail so that we wouldn't miss it. So then to close tonight, I'm going to read Luke 22. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to start reading at verse 35 because now Jesus himself is going to validate and say, I'm the fulfillment of this. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money, without a money belt, without a bag or sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. Jesus himself reached back to Isaiah 53 and said, I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over and they're going to treat me horribly. But I'll be back. In three days, I'll be alive again. And they, just like all the Jewish rabbis before them, couldn't conceive of that, didn't get it. I still to this day don't understand. Well, I do understand, but it's tough to comprehend why it is that when Jesus came out of the grave, there weren't 12 guys standing there going, yeah, we knew you'd be back. Because he kept saying it. He kept saying he was going to do it. And he even pointed them to Isaiah 53 that says it. And if they could comprehend it, if they could understand the report, then they would have known when he resurrected again that he was indeed the Messiah. And that's why the conversation on the Emmaus Road is so interesting. Because even they were saying, yeah, the grave's empty and we don't quite get it. And Jesus said, you're fools because you don't believe what the prophets said. And I think he was referring to that right there that we read tonight. So, I know I kept you a couple minutes long, but I hope it was worth it. If you walk away with nothing tonight, well, don't walk away with nothing. Walk away with something. Get a cup of coffee, something. But if you walk away with something theological, walk away with the reality, the very freeing reality, the very comforting reality, that God is actually satisfied because of what Christ did. And if you're in Christ and he's in you, he is satisfied with you. And that will give you the ability to lay your head down tonight and actually rest, because it's not up to you to impress God. He's already impressed. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.